This episode of That Time of the Month is brought to you by Essential Goodness, a local indie bath and body company in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit their store on Etsy, My Essential Goodness, and get 20% off by using the code TTOTM. All of their products are 100% made with natural ingredients and fragrance only with essential oils. Feeling blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Hello, everybody. Welcome to that time of the month. Thank you all so much for being here. Give yourselves a big round of applause for being here and not out in the beautiful weather. We appreciate that. Um, and a big round of applause for all of our storytellers who are brave enough to write stories so that we have a show. Um, but I'm really I'm so happy you're all here for our big second anniversary show. I can't believe it's already been two years. I think Nancy's been at like every single show. Maybe Bob, too. You guys have been neck and neck. Um, but uh, it's been... I can't believe it's already been two years. I just remember moving here and I had been doing the show in Los Angeles for about nine months and then... Which is funny, because it's called that time of month. But, um, and then my husband got a job offer here, so we moved here and had no idea if this kind of a thing would work in the, in the South. And I put an ad on Craigslist, and I didn't think anyone would respond. And the first two or three submissions I got were amazing. I was so, I was so happy that um, I was finding women who were willing to do this. Women only, by the way, because the first month I put out... You know, the ads saying it's five women and one token man. And I really played up like token and said that we were going to fan him and feed him chocolates. And I thought it would be really funny and cute. Well, uh, all no men submitted. <laughs> so I guess I freaked people out. Um, so I was a little nervous. Like I thought we were just going to have to ditch the man thing and just do all women. But then the second month, Mr. Christopher Pilney was the first brave man. <laughs> to submit a story, and he held the, the bar very high, um, and well, he worked at Victoria's Secret before, so this is like nothing. Um, we don't get as many submissions as I got in Los Angeles, uh, but they're, they're very high quality here, um, and, uh, but I oftentimes have to hound people like poor Landon over here. I feel like I'm like his life coach. I'm always like emailing like, how's that story coming along? You know you want to do it. You know, let's go Landon. Um, he's still writing it down. He's a, he's a really great stand-up comedian, but you know, I'm going to write it down to do the show. Um, so it's always interesting uh, recruiting people and um, to be in the show. So I'm thrilled when, when the lineup comes together. But we're going to get this story, this show going with your first story. Um, but please welcome to the stage for the first time, the wonderful Sherry Wilds. Good evening, good evening, friends and relatives and people I paid to laugh that happen to be here. Who knows what anniversary is coming up in the next couple of days, April 15th to be exact, rolling around. Any thoughts? 
Evacuation. It's nothing that disastrous. It's the sinking of the Titanic, actually. And uh, but April of 2012 was not only the hundredth anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, but also the anniversary of me sinking to a new low. But I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. For now, on with our story, which I call Trinkets of the Titanic. It was one of those sleepless nights. You know, those nights your mother's worst-case scenarios push into your brain and your logical, odds-or-nothing-bad-will-happen self flees to a dark cave somewhere in your cerebellum. Nothing horrible for me to worry about, you know, just the usual stuff. Like, will my allergies kick in and all, all the things that I'm allergic to about the time I get up to do a presentation in front of a bunch of fellow lawyers? Will I disgust them when I blow my nose? Will those attorneys laugh at my lawyer joke? You know, the one that says, how many lawyers does it take to roof a house? Anybody know? Depends how thin you slice them. <laughs> or will they choose to just sue me for slander? You know, it's just the stuff we all worry about at 3 a.m. To empty my head of images of snot and angry lawyers... I did what all red-blooded Americans do at 3 a.m. on a sleepless night. I turned on bad television. Having moved to my couch in the TV room, I snuggled up under my grandmother's quilt to watch one of those learning stations. Maybe I could drift off to sleep to aliens who mated with Neanderthals. Or hillbillies who mated with Neanderthals. <laughs> Anything was better than stage fright and snot. Besides, I might wake up in the morning having learned something new. Much to my relief, I found a documentary about the sinking of the Titanic to commemorate the 100th anniversary of its fatal plunge into the icy seas. I woke up again a little after four to an infomercial, and no new revelations about life or the Titanic. They were hawking jewelry, but not just any jewelry, special Titanic jewelry. Special Titanic jewelry that actually held a piece of the Titanic. Well, and it was in a clear blue locket. Well, it wasn't exactly a piece of the Titanic, but a piece of coal from the Titanic. Yes, you too can own a piece of history. Well, I laughed to myself and to my dog, Alex, and he raised his cute schnauzer poodle mix face to look at his crazy owner and then went back to chasing dream rabbits. Owning a piece of coal from the Titanic, it's kind of like owning a drop of antifreeze from a Lamborghini. <laughs> and then proudly saying that you owned a piece of a Lamborghini. Please. Well, don't get me wrong, or do get me wrong if you wish. It's your choice. But I love the whole Titanic thing. Always have, always will. Themes from that fateful night echo through many of our lives. We're just reminded of those themes when the Titanic bobs back to the surface through a movie, a documentary, or some museum exhibit. But it's the cheesy commercialization of the great ship that puts ice in my veins, a piece of history, a piece of junk. The Titanic has popped up many times in my life. As a child, I read everything I could get my hands on about it. In the late 80s, as a special education teacher in rural East Tennessee, I taught a young man with autism named Jerry, who would bombard anyone he could corner with the tales and statistics of the giant ship. How many people do you know who can tell you the exact number of deck chairs on board? The Titanic became a great tool for me to keep his interest in reading and math. You know, teachers do have to be flexible. 
Well, what it is that fascinates us, I don't know, to the point of obsession about this ship. I've been to a museum in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and seen Titanic's carved wooden banister and an actual deck chair that the rescuers from that city pulled from the ocean, along with the frozen bodies left behind. Soon after the ship was found, I had the surreal experience of seeing an exhibit of Titanic artifacts at the Great Pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> I've been to the Titanic Museum in Pigeon Forge, home of life-size putt-putt golf dinosaurs, and a theme park named after a singer with bigger-than-life-size boobs and hair. And when my parents suggested a family visit to the Pigeon Forge Museum, I imagined pushing a button and witnessing a jerkily moving robot character of the captain saying something like, I'll go down with the ship. I'll go down with the ship. Well, maybe some bungee jumping off the ship's bow to Celine Dion tunes. <laughs> Fortunately, I was pleasantly surprised. Actual artifacts were housed there. Madeline Astor's life preserver was enclosed in a clear case that swung from giant chains hung from the ceiling. Unfortunately... I touched that case, causing it to sway, and a stern guard yelled at me, don't touch that. You could have set off that silent alarm, and a swarm of police would be here in minutes. Well, I am pleased to uh, say that as of this day, the police have never been summoned due to my behavior or my carelessness. But I didn't actively seek out these museum experiences. They just bobbed to the surface when I was traveling with others or when I was at a ship museum that happened to have a Titanic exhibit. You know, Titanic just sort of sails into our lives, sometimes unexpectedly, leaving a trail of fears like the coal strewn on the ocean floor. The immediacy of the events and choices compel us. Heroics, cowardice, fragility, not knowing which character we would be in the drama if looking over the edge at those waiting lifeboats. When my grandson was three, I introduced him to a children's book about the Titanic, and he was hooked. The drawings spurred questions about a topic most of us find difficult to discuss with children, not sex, death. So when he innocently asked me, Nana, what happened to those people in the water? I just flat out lied and said something like, oh, honey, they just swam to shore. <laughs> or the boats came back and got them. Why are their eyes closed, Nana? Oh, honey, they're just sleeping. I just wasn't ready for that conversation that would later come when his dog Snoop died. Why was I surprised that the biggest question for adults, the D word, would come up for a child? I always thought I was a G-rated Nana, but I had entered into a PG-13 world that day. So let's get back to infomercials, sleepless nights, and plastic Titanic lockets. That night, in April 2012, I looked at the television, and that chip of coal, a prenatal diamond, a genuine titanic artifact. I wondered whether the passengers, both rich and poor, gave any thought about that coal that kept the titanic propelling forward. That coal that lay underground for millions of years, being dug up by a bent-over black lung miner, loaded onto an unsinkable ship that sank, floated gently and violently, but poetically, to rest on the seafloor. That chip of darkness, scooped up by robotic arms, sent to a factory and haphazardly slapped into a piece of plastic on a chain. Yes, April's an anniversary. It's the, <laughs> it's the anniversary of me, G 
enjoying the kitschy, insomnia-crazed crap of the late-night infomercial orderers clamoring to own their own piece of history. And you know what? I know for a fact it's genuine because it came with a bona fide certificate of authenticity. I've been tempted to crack open this locket, peel out that little chip coal, and rub it between my fingers. But like the time I broke open a snow globe to look at the little houses inside, the magic could be gone. So after the show, you can come on up. And uh, you can take a look. Don't touch. It's like carrying Madeline Astor's life jacket on a chain around my neck. I'm a walking museum. But at least I didn't buy the matching earrings. <laughs> Sherry Wilds, give her a big round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. Let me see. It's got a little tiny shield. That's very cool. And I'm a lawyer, and I believe that certificate of authenticity. That's very classy. Uh, I, I actually have my own Titanic story on that. My, uh, it was like right after, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie came out and it was my mom's birthday or something and my dad got her a replica of the big one that, you know, Rose wore or whatever. <laughs> like, where is she going to wear that? Oh my gosh. So, it's almost Mother's Day if you guys need ideas. A replica. That huge stone. And that's why in my family, we tell each other exactly what to get. We give you like a list and say, go into, you know, Macy's, go right to this aisle and get this. Because otherwise my dad gets replicas of necklaces from the Titanic. From the movie, not even the real Titanic. Um, <laughs> wow, well, great job on your very first time here. One more round of applause for Sherry. We'll keep this show going. Our next storyteller, as I said, is a published author. And this may be one of the first times we've had someone come back to back. She was also here last month for Badly Behaved Women. She comes from a long line of Badly Behaved Women. Please welcome Kathleen Cosgrove. Kathleen! November 27th, 2012, I was in a near-fatal car crash. It was straight up 6 p.m. November 27th, 2013, I graduated from beauty school. It was straight up 6 p.m. Weird, huh? I tried going back to other November 27ths in my life to see if there was a pattern. It's the birthday of a friend, but that's all I got. Not being one of those people who can clearly remember what they had for breakfast on, say, June 12th of 30 years ago. Hell, I can't remember where my car keys are when I'm holding them. <laughs> well, that date has no other significance for me other than I nearly died twice. <laughs> the first entailed jaws of life, the trauma unit at Vanderbilt, surgery, walkers, and pain. Lots and lots of pain. But it also had pain pills. Good ones, the Rush Limbaugh kind. <laughs> the other entailed girls who go to beauty school. Let that sink in for a moment. 
me in school with girls who are growing up in a time when, as babies, their first sentence is, where's my effing bottle? <laughs> and who think that Richard Nixon is the name of a character in Game of Thrones. <laughs> the communication divide couldn't have been wider if I'd gone to school with humpback whales. I blame the aforementioned pills on my decision to go to school. That and post, pass, so long, and sayonara menopause. The side effects are roughly the same. One makes you think it's a good idea at 60 to enroll in beauty school, and the other sends you to the admissions office of beauty school. My first day of class, I met a young woman, a fellow student of glamour, who was on probation. <laughs> Apparently, selling controlled substances to your co-workers at IHOP while on probation for violating your previous probation is not enough to prevent you from pursuing a career in aesthetics. <laughs> a career in which, I might add, involves operating scary stuff like tweezers and pointy scissors. <laughs> I know, it doesn't sound too scary, unless the operator of those is stoned and no longer has depth perception. <laughs> Every day she would walk through the door, throw her books down in disgust because someone, usually a social worker or a probation officer, had the unmitigated gall to expect her to be somewhere else at some time that was clearly inconvenient to her full-time job of drug trafficking. <laughs> This injustice would prevent her from being on time to class or having assignments completed or wearing shoes. I chose the field of aesthetics because I had a facial once. I'm glad in retrospect I hadn't used the same logic regarding a visit to the circus. I had visions only of an atmosphere of soft lighting, relav relaxing lavender-scented everything, while overhead speakers played Tibetan, chakra, new-agey harp music with ocean sounds. <laughs> Much to my surprise, it turned out that aesthetics in the year of our Lord, 2013, also meant applying wax to vaginas and anuses. <laughs> My first careers in life was that of a nurse, a career chosen, I might add, while not under the influence of narcotics, but because my mother told me, you need to make your own damn money and not have to depend on any goddamn man to support you. <laughs> she may have been a little bitter, but I digress. Anyway, as a nurse, and most especially as a labor and delivery nurse, I had seen more than my share of those previously mentioned lady parts. Those instances always involved the beginning of life, of a miracle I never got tired of witnessing. I even always wept a little. My tears over the vagina waxing were brought on by a much different emotion. <laughs> they were more of the, what do you mean I can't get my tuition money back variety. <laughs> Thus was I applying hot, hot, hot wax to the nether regions of ladies who wanted to go back to their super sexy days of prepubescence. 
I would pull in a most painful way every last follicle of hair from their lady garden, all while they texted their friends about where they were going for dinner that evening, or updating their Facebook status with, came for my Brazilian right after Pilates and hot yoga, yuck, LOL, where's my effing bottle? Recovering from my accident meant struggling to walk again. I am a woman undaunted. Chariots of Fire theme music played on in my mind. I was Rocky Balboa, running up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art in my walker with the little seat attached. <laughs> Fast forward a few short months to me in the spa, attempting a shoulder and neck massage on a woman I think could have actually been a giant. <laughs> I had to raise the armrest just to accommodate her love handles. But, as I mentioned, I do persevere, even when it's ridiculous to do so. So I managed to wedge my hands under her shoulder through sheer force of will. And there they stayed. <laughs> I sweated. I pulled. She snored. <laughs> At last I was able to pull free and land straight down onto the floor, taking the relaxing, lavender-scented bowl of hot water with me. <laughs> and only slightly soaking my client, the sumo wrestler. <laughs> the school did not expel me because, as I stated earlier, the admission standards in beauty school are a bit more flexible than Harvard's, <laughs> or even those of the Community College of Toad Stump, Arkansas. <laughs> the months passed and the humiliations were so commonplace as to be barely noticed. My peers, the girls who were younger than my car, practice how to apply makeup to sagging skin, and lessons in just what to do with wrinkles became ever so much easier as they had a built-in model. I had the distinction of being the oldest student ever in that particular beauty school. Not like being crowned Queen of England, now is it? I scheduled a trip to Florida to visit my mother and her friends at church so someone would call me young lady. I visited nursing homes to bring cookies and show off my jaunty gait. I passed my test, I completed my 750 hours and performed the required number of vagina waxings. I had done it. The night of graduation, my daughter came, the one who had been there 365 days earlier riding with me in an ambulance. The sweet young girls and the felons who stood beside me, shoulder to shoulder when I did my first ear candling, told me I was an inspiration, and I was proud of myself. I did this thing. It was a decision born out of a fear of death coming too soon, of realizing that I had more years behind me than in front of me, of feeling the need to prove that I could still do stuff, that I was relevant. It was born out of all of that, and, you know, hydrocodone. <laughs> and if I had to do it all over again, well, honestly, I wouldn't have. I'd have just learned Spanish with Rosetta Stone or joined the circus. <laughs> but what the hell, you live and learn. I'm not sure what this November 27th will bring, but know this, I have a pot of hot wax and a license to use it. <laughs> Thank
Kathleen Cosgrove, give her a round of applause. I, I can't say anything because I almost opened a laundromat. Um, and this is like a few years ago, not like in the 80s. Okay, we thought we'd go two, two girls and then a guy, and two girls and a guy. So our first guy is my, uh, my life coach student. Um, he is hilarious. I love his sense of humor, and I can't wait to hear his story and have all of you hear his story. Please welcome Landon Lyon. Landon! I knew I had to do this show uh, when, thank you, when Melanie uh, sent out the email that it's about anniversaries because uh, two weeks ago my wife and I celebrated eight wonderful years of marriage. Woo! It was our twelfth anniversary. <laughs> but, you know, mathematically, eight twelfths reduces a two thirds, and as a white man once said, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> to tell you about our anniversary, I need to tell you first about our wedding day which was nearly ruined by Guatemalans. But to tell you about our wedding, you didn't know about how we met. On April 1st, 2002, I married a lady I'd known for 503 days. We met on her 30th birthday. I was 29. When she would return to Nashville for a mere 24 hours. I'd been seeing shows at, at Zany's when I became acquainted with an older lady named Melissa, a wife and mother. And one day, in a way, you'd politely flirt with an older mom type. I casually stated... I would love to meet a girl just like you. And she said, well, you're in luck, because I have an identical twin who lives in South Florida. She proceeded to show me a picture of a much younger woman who was cute and trendy and one might even say sassy. And I thought, okay, I can work with that. So Melissa tells me her sister will be in town on Tuesday. Sunday night, Melissa tells me her sister will be in town for Tuesday night for 24 hours. And normally in a situation like that, I would apologize on Thursday for not remembering until Wednesday that I was supposed to be somewhere Tuesday for our conversation on Sunday. <laughs> but as fate would have it, I did remember and showed up at the restaurant where Melinda and Melissa were dining with 35 friends and family. Wow. Yes. So I met Melinda. She's cool. But she's in town for 24 hours, surrounded by family and friends who she hasn't seen and no telling how long. A couple of her friends, who I will call Barbie and Barbie's friend, well, they lived in Nashville, and South Florida's a long way away, so I decided to go all in on Barbie, figuratively speaking. And as I'm no doubtly charming Barbie, my future wife rudely interrupts me. And so we decided to talk and hang out a while, and despite her best attempts to scale Mount St. Landon, she returned to Florida with... Memories of some polite conversation and my business card with the number to my direct line. Now, she might tell the story differently, but she'll have to sign up and do that herself. Now, we talked regularly on the phone for the next month and a half until Christmas, and she wanted me to pick her up at the airport, and I agreed, despite the fact that I was three hours away at my parents' house. So I picked her up, and we proceeded on our first date. Breakfast at the Stewart's Ferry's Pie Cracker Barrel. As we were waiting for our table, I turned to her and said, Hey, do you want to play checkers? She said, Sure. And as we, two future spouses, sat there by the warm, cozy fire, I, sitting across from my future bride, across the checkerboard, 
proceeded to beat the ever-living snot out of her. It was brutal. If checkers were assault and battery, I'd still be in prison. I was jumping, double jumping, reverse jumping, saying king me more times than Prince Charles. I was talking trash, and if we hadn't been a $100 cab ride from her sister's house, we may never had a second date. Now, the holidays passed, and Melinda returned to South Florida, and we talked every night on the phone, and she managed to get me booked at a comedy club down there where she lived. And so I started visiting South Florida more, and sometimes she'd come out on the road and visit me at other clubs. And after a time, I just started spending more and more time in South Florida. And then one day, Friday, November 11th, 2001, I had planned to propose to a lady I'd known just less than a year. I had it all planned out. It was going to be a sold-out second show Friday at the Comedy Corner. I was going to bring her up towards the end. And in front of 300 people, I was going to drop down on one knee and present a ring and ask her to be my bride. Well, Melinda was kind of a bitchy mood that day. <laughs> and acted as horribly as I can ever recall her ever being. So, Saturday... November 12th, 2001, a slightly less enthusiastic Landon, still considering dedicating his future to this young lady, planned another event. It's going to be somewhat similar, a little more laid back, but again, Melinda was in a horrible mood. And in a line, you can only think I'm making this up, but I promise. Her whole mood was upset. She was upset because she could not find a pair of shoes, and she insisted that gypsies had broken into the condo and stolen them. <laughs> to this day, we still don't know where those shoes are, but I'm pretty certain it wasn't gypsies. <laughs> Sunday, November 13th, 2001. We go to the comedy club. We come back. We're on the balcony drinking champagne. I drop the one knee and say, Hey, tomorrow's the last day I can return this. <laughs> And so we decided to begin our life together, the next chapter, on April 1st, 2002. A great day to get married, a bad day to propose. I tell you this because I said this is our 12th anniversary. Uh, I went into Costco because I'm, I'm thrifty. And I got a do two dozen roses and a dozen, or uh, an arrangement. I don't think they count tulips by number. So it was a tulips are favorite flower, two dozen roses. And as I was going through the line, April Fool's Day, I look at the cashier and I say, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend for an April Fool's joke. <laughs> she said, you're an idiot. <laughs> but it's not a bad day to get married, because when you tell people that you got married, then they think you're joking, and then they find out that you weren't joking. <laughs> so we found a uh, notary public. He was a 70-something-year-old man named Merle Muddy Waters. Because when you're getting married on a Monday morning at sunrise in South Florida, you want to go with a 70-something-year-old man, because they're the only ones that are getting up. And I didn't trust myself to get up. I stayed up all night. So we had this nice, romantic sunrise service. Sun coming up over the ocean. The ocean breeze. Merle, muddy waters. A private ceremony. Didn't tell anyone. And as he pronounced this man and wife, a Guatemalan homeless man crawled out from under the lifeguard stand as our only uninvited guest. 
And the people who are witnesses, they were a professional landscaper, so they had this great property that was surrounded by a little channel, like a swamp kind of, but water. And they had this adult treehouse. And so that was where we were going to consummate our marriage. And we went up to the, the treehouse, this great romantic view, had fresh squeezed mango juice. Nice. A beautiful glass water pipe packed with South Florida's finest future most ridiculous thing to be outlawed for Melinda. Now, like I said, she may tell the story differently, but she'll have to sign for that. And then as we are just enjoying ourselves and consummate our marriage, we look up and on a power line, on a cherry picker, there's a Guatemalan construction worker peering into the treehouse. So that's, they're counting that as two Guatemalans. I'm sure they're nice people, they just have bad timing. Now looking back, I knew we'd spend our lives together when Melinda and I were talking and one day she referred to someone as our age. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are they your age or my age? Because you're in your 30s and I'm in my 20s. And she high-fived me and the entire convenience store gave me a standing ovation and again, it might have happened somewhat differently. <laughs> But I knew then that I couldn't wait to repeat it when she was 40 and I was 39, or when she was 50 and I was 49 and 60 and 59, so forth and so forth. And maybe someday, hopefully, she'll be 100 and I'll be 99, and we'll look back and think, you know, we've been through the, throughout the years, we've been through good and bad, ups and downs, sickness and health, the richer and poor, major fights over minor issues, like, hey, if you're going to call it a secret wedding, let's not tell a radio DJ who's best friends with your sister. <laughs> Or minor battles over major issues like, is it really eloping when you're two 30-year-old people living 14 hours away from everyone you know? No, it's called a favor. <laughs> so over the years, you know, we've threatened divorce, we've laughed, we've cried, we've yelled, and we've cursed. But the one thing we never did again was ever, ever play another game of checkers. Thank you. I'm winding line. Landon Lyon, keep it going, keep it going. Oh man, that was classic. Oh, and how did you know that these guys were Guatemalan? Sign, I'm Guatemalan. Okay. Um, comedians, we, just, we love to like uh, tie in something comedic into everything, right? You had to get married on April Fool's Day. I had to have a comedian marry us. Um, and people, it's so funny because we had a comedian, it's always about me, uh, we had a comedian marry us and, uh, and now he's like really big in commercials and stuff. So people would be like, oh my God, we saw your minister in like a Bud Light commercial. And I'm like, he's not a real minister. People still think he's like a real minister. Um, he was just a comedian, he got a, a certificate online. Certificate. Uh, call that. <laughs> um, so that was fantastic. Uh, but how many women, when they were proposed to, were in a bitchy mood? <laughs> because I think it's like so hard for, yeah, we got a couple. I think it's hard for men to surprise us because like we're usually the ones who like plan the stuff. And like my husband was like, um, let's ride bikes to dinner because we lived kind of by the beach in California. And I was like, ugh. 
and he wanted to ride bikes on the beach, and then he was going to propose halfway, and he, when he said, can we ride bikes to sushi, I was like, oh, can we just drive? I'm really hungry. And then um, he finally convinced me to get on the bike, but I was so, like, resentful that we were on the bikes and that I was going to have to wait longer to eat that I started riding real fast ahead of him, and he, like, could not even keep up with me. And so finally he, like, sped past me and, like, went into, like, this... Um, it was like a circle, what are those things called? Like a traffic circle. And he went into the middle and I was like, what is he doing now? Like I was so mad and so I was like, ugh. So I stood by the restaurant like tapping my toe and he still didn't come. So then I finally had to go into the center and then he got down on his knee and I proposed. But we're gonna keep this show going. So our next lady um, was in our very first, our debut show in Nashville and I remember being so happy to get your submission back then and now it's two years later and uh, it was, at the time, I had just gotten married and um, didn't know anything about about having babies, and she had this story about her birth experience and everything, and I just found it so fascinating, but I couldn't relate at all, and now I can totally relate. And I've told, like, five stories about my pregnancy and my delivery, and, and they've heard way too much here about that. Um, but this is a different story she's going to be telling tonight. Um, please welcome back to the stage Mandy Ray Jones. Nice introduction. <laughs> okay, without further ado, 25 years of riding the crimson wave. Recently, I was reading a book about puberty for girls, a book preparing them for the onset of menses. This book explained that a young lady who is having her first period might see brown, rust color, or bright red when she first starts bleeding. I found myself wishing this book was available to me 25 years ago when I was 11 and started my first period, an extremely traumatizing time in my life. I knew about the menstrual cycle. I saw my mom being menstrual all of my young life. She'd talked to me about the facts of life and such. What I did not know was that it could happen to me at age 11, or that it might not look like blood, or that it would hurt so much. So for a couple of days, I'd been seeing brown on my toilet paper, which I promptly mistook for poor hygiene. <laughs> Lucky for me, I was home from school because of an ear infection on the day that Aunt Flo showed up for real. I remember being in the bathroom while my mom was taking a bath because showers weren't allowed at my house as someone might fall and hit their head on the side of the tub or the faucet. To say my parents were overprotective would be a huge understatement. I slept right between them every night of my life until I was nine years old, and my dad claims this is the very reason that I was an only child. Anyway, I discovered what was, no doubt, blood. I knew what was happening to me, and I didn't like it one bit. I was becoming a woman. I didn't want to be a woman. I didn't feel like a woman. I felt like a giant, overly developed girl who still played Barbie and had a crush on Fred Savage. <laughs> My mom told me, or took me to the store to purchase sanitary napkins marketed to teenage girls. I remember the wrapper was this peach color. Peach was very popular in 1989. The long, thin sanitary napkins were not nearly as absorbent as I needed them to be. My flow was so heavy that what I really needed was something akin to the adult diapers I would later use postpartum. <laughs> At least I wasn't being expected to use those belt devices my mother described from when she was a young lady. 
Either way, I was miserable. There was the ear infection, and I was bleeding like a stuck hog, quickly ruining all of my underwear. I was in so much pain that I remember having to lie on the couch with a heating pad. Oh, how I longed to take a shower. But showers weren't allowed in my safety always comes first house, remember? If this was what it was going to be like to be a woman, I didn't want any part of it. Unless becoming a woman meant I could make my own damn rules about how to bathe. The next day, I reluctantly returned to school. I was terrified to walk into my fifth grade classroom and cross in front of my teacher, classmates, and of course, the boys. They would all know. Every single one of them would be sure that I was now a woman, cursed with an obnoxious monthly visitor. Worse, bathroom breaks weren't something readily come by in my school, and that morning, I needed one desperately. That morning, I put on my mint green cotton leggings and a long peach tunic. Long to hide what felt like an enormous bulge in my pants. What I did not, had not considered was that this might not be the best time to wear light-colored leggings. Leggings don't have pockets. Without pockets, how was I to transport a very large sanitary napkin? By the time I had made it to the bathroom, it was too late. The absorbency of my feminine hygiene product had failed me miserably. Cotton was also a terrible and leaky fabric choice. Not yet privy to the wad of toilet paper trick, a woman's temporary last resort. Instead of removing the soaked pad, I left it where it was, tied my jean jacket around my waist, and headed back to my fifth grade classroom, praying that the jacket and the tunic would conceal the damage. Returning, I discovered that I'd been in the restroom so long that I'd missed heading to my next period, no pun intended. It was just me and my teacher. I meekly approached the desk. I need to go home, I mumbled. I need to call my mom and have her come pick me up. Between the look on my face and the jean jacket awkwardly tied around my waist, I think she put two and two together and didn't ask any questions. I carefully walked to the office to call home. Now, to be clear, my mother, who didn't shower, also rarely went anywhere during the week. However, on this particular day, she was nowhere to be found. Since this was before the day of cell phones or even answering machines in my case, and since this was a straight-up genuine emergency, I insisted it was, the office worker called my alternative contact person, my neighbor. The same neighbor my mom dropped me off with when my dad was having a heart attack two years earlier, who reassured me it couldn't possibly be a heart attack because he didn't have a heart. <laughs> that neighbor. Oh, what the heck. It was better than staying at school soaking in blood. When my neighbor showed up, I was so weary, so emotionally exhausted from everything I'd been through that morning that I caved and confided in her. She was actually pretty cool about it. She retrieved a spare key to my house and gave me a space to clean myself up. Changing my clothing, I was sure to put on dark jeans and a bright red sweatshirt. <laughs> I survived, but just barely. I would go on to have menstrual leaks and accidents periodically. That time was totally intended. I would learn to use thick overnight pads for the first two days of my period. I would eventually gain my independence from my mother at age 15 when I rebelliously started taking showers and using the God-forbidden tampons despite her insistent warnings of their danger. I don't think I ever fully recovered from that horrifying coming-of-age experience during the spring of 1989. Does anyone... It's been 25 years, and to this day, I still don't own a pair of light-colored pants.
Mandy Ray Jones. Okay, so we have two more storytellers, and I'm going to be the next one. Um, this is this is a story called "I Hate Hugging." <laughs> I was a shy kid. My mom said that when in when I was in preschool, the teacher asked all of the kids to hold hands, and I said, "No thanks, I'll just hold my own." <laughs> that may have been the beginning of my aversion to human contact. As a kid, I remember grandparents, aunts, uncles giving me big, horrible hugs, and if I didn't blatantly push them away or wiggle free, I stood there stiff as a board until the torture was over. They thought this was adorable and would laugh and laugh. No one thought to seek professional help. They probably thought I'd grow out of this, but it became more intense by middle school. I don't know what went on at your junior high, but at mine, girls were constantly touching, hugging multiple times per day, playing with each other's hair, giving back rubs, and playing that weird arm tickle game where you grow a garden. Um, what? If you're curious what that actually is, don't Google girls tickling each other. <laughs> That's, that's not it. I remember the nervous rides to Chaparral Middle School. My mind would race. Who was going to try to hug me today? What would I do? What would I say? I decided I'd just go along with it. I didn't want to make a scene. But I wouldn't hug back. I'd keep it quick. I'd never initiate. And I definitely wouldn't like it. I didn't fool my friends for long, though. They started to notice my lack of interest. They made comments like, girl, you have to hug back. Or, come on, girl, give me a real hug. I wanted to vomit. I tried harder for a while. I tried acting like a warmer, more loving person, but it just felt fake. I let my discomfort, bless you. I let my discomfort build and build until one day I finally exploded which used to be the case with most of the issues I eventually faced. My friend Laura picked the wrong girl to hug that day. I pushed Laura W. away and yelled, Stop hugging me! What is the matter with you? Then, stepping back and addressing all of my girlfriends, I yelled, Can't you all just keep your hands to yourself? At this point, I should probably put fears to rest and mention that I was never inappropriately touched by anyone. No uncle, no neighbor. <laughs> I actually wasn't touched much at all, which may be part of the problem. I came from a close-knit family. Growing up, they never missed a single soccer game or waiting up at curfew for my sister and I. Um, but we've just never been close in the physical sense. We're a very... We weren't a very affectionate family, and the little bit we did have was awkward. There was a lot of side-hugging. I also don't remember my parents being outwardly loving with each other, besides once a year on their anniversary. They'd engage in a dramatic embrace where my dad would dip my mom and peck her so lightly on the lips. I, of course, would turn away in disgust. <laughs> 
After my outburst back at junior high, my friends' feelings were hurt. At first, they gave me the cold shoulder, but I liked that too much. <laughs> so then they started teasing me. If someone outside our inner circle went in for the hug, they'd warn. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Melanie's not a hugger. I was so embarrassed, but also really relieved. This continued through high school. But when I went away to college at San Diego State, I had to explain my stance all over again. No hugging was a difficult policy for my sorority sisters to wrap their pretty little minds around. Luckily, I waited to reveal this until large quantities of alcohol were being consumed. <laughs> they just laughed it off and then against my will, hugged me anyway. I'm not kidding, I cried as I was squeezed between Victoria's Secret Miracle Bras, way too much <laughs> MAC makeup, and an overload of Pleasure's perfume. From that day forward, whenever we went out partying, so every night except Monday, <laughs> this became a running joke. My sorority sisters would send people I'd never seen before in my life over to hug me. <laughs> These strangers would wrap their arms around me, sometimes even double-teaming me. I was living my worst nightmare. Looking back, I think the underlying reason for my hugging repugnance was not about how it felt. I was just scared that I was incompetent in this area. I felt everyone was naturally warmer than me, that they knew something about life and relationships that I didn't. A few years after college, it became as clear as alkaline water that I had a life-limiting fear of intimacy. In my usual fashion, this was brought to my attention by an eruption of emotion. I had been taking an acting wor workshop to enhance my stand-up comedy. After I performed a monologue, my teacher, in the most loving, supportive, artsy-fartsy way, suggested that I be more vulnerable on stage. Well, that's not going to happen, I yelled in the most defensive way. I then proceeded to run out of the theater, got into my car, and drove away. No one was going to tell me to be vulnerable. How dare he? I'll never go back. But the next week, I crawled back to try and wrap my mind around this outlandish concept he spoke of. Shortly after that, through an interesting chain of events, I started working with a spiritual advisor. Well, okay, a sponsor. <laughs> Every time we'd meet, she'd give me this big bear hug. I tried to explain my position on hugging, but she wasn't hearing it. Instead, she grabbed me even tighter, whispered in my ear, I am going to love you until you can love yourself. <laughs> Ooh, gross. What have I got myself into? But like with the acting class, something kept me going back. And it wasn't just her. Everyone in our spiritual development classes. <laughs> okay, 12-step meetings. <laughs> would throw their arms around me. I'd get bombarded by big, bouncy boobs and leather jackets reeking of cigarette smoke. They showed me more unconditional love than one person should ever have to endure. <laughs> 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 
Little by little, I started to soften to their hugs. The transformation was so slow and subtle, I didn't even notice it happen. Until one day, when I attended an off-site work conference with my company. I was running late, but luckily there was a complimentary valet. I tossed him my keys, and he pointed me in the direction of the convention room. I turned one corner and then another. It was further than I thought. My boss was going to kill me. As I turned the next corner, I was so relieved to see Derek, my friendly coworker, waving me over. I rushed to him, and that's when it happened. I threw my arms around my colleague and pulled him in tight. He stiffened up and pulled away. <laughs> my mind flashed to the mandatory sexual harassment video we had recently watched. I think this was one of the scenarios. Darren looked stunned as we found our seats. As I sat there in the conference room, bright red, it dawned on me just how far I had come. So far that I was now accidentally hugging coworkers who were just opening their arms to usher me inside. <laughs> I laughed and felt this comforting warmth fill me. I guess I was capable of connection. I guess I wasn't inadequate after all. None of us are. But intimacy doesn't come naturally for some, for some of us. Some of us have to work at it. Or better, have to work at breaking down the defenses that keep closeness at an arm's distance. Ten years later, almost, almost to the day, it's hard for me to believe that I'm the girl in this story. You couldn't pay me enough not to squeeze and cuddle my little daughter or my husband and cover them in kisses. I'm feeling very vulnerable. <laughs> Anyone else not a big hugger? Yeah, because I um, I wrote the story and it went in. Uh, it was it was in this uh, really cool blog called Tiny Buddha. It's like kind of an inspirational blog, and uh, I got a lot of comments. So people saying they were the same way or still are or whatever. So interesting. Anyways, enough about me. Um, I am thrilled for our final token man, honorary male, as I like to say with Mike. So professional, and he's a, he's a former minister, so I feel like token man is a little, you know. Um, but Mike is... Mike is the funniest guy, besides Landon. Mike is the funniest guy, um, and Chris. Um, but he, I, I get paid to watch The Bachelor. I write, like, a, a synopsis of The Bachelor, and Mike found that out, and um, so he and his wife, Erica, watch it too, and he texts me the funniest stuff about The Bachelor, and I actually, like, steal it all, and I, I, I get paid for it. Um, he, he brings up some very interesting points. We're going to be raffling off his book, Bus People. This is about riding the Greyhound bus for a month. Um, but without further ado, let's bring Mr. Mike Pentecost back to the stage. One of my favorites. All right. My story is called Vagina and Anus Waxing. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for that imagery 
As I lay my head down tonight, that will... <laughs> Okay, I had my very first date uh, with Erica on Thursday night, October 7th, 1993. I was wearing Levi's and a black polo shirt. And just last October, I took her to Buffalo Wild Wings, which back in the day was called BW3s, to the site of our first date. And um, she didn't realize what was going on until I brought it up. But 20 years ago, here we were, I asked you out. I love dates. I love numbers. We got engaged on May 7th, 1994. I remember that vividly over at the Opryland Hotel. We got married on May 27th, 1995. And I remember the, the dates and the details of the events, but I'm not a believer that anniversaries in and of themselves are sacred. Rather, they just uh, point to something larger, right? It's a chance to commemorate um, a relationship, be it a marriage, a friendship, or even an ordination. As Melanie briefly mentioned, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister who's not actively serving in a congregation. But the date of my ordination was March 21st, 1999. And like other anniversary dates, it's just that, a number, an occasion to acknowledge something bigger, in that case a calling to a life uh, of ministry. But for those of us that build up to anniversary dates and moments, it usually leads to heartache and letdown, as you're well aware. Crappy gifts, <laughs> forgotten details, and nobody really giving a crap as much as you do seem to be the order of the day. <laughs> and sadly, that's how it is. In the church, congregations are full of busy people, and they have their own stuff going on. In the 11 years I was active in the ministry, they never once acknowledged the date of my ordination or the date of my arrival, uh, but they remember events. Just like it is with your family, it's serendipitous stuff. You can map out a family vacation with every detail down to the minute, where you're going, what you're going to do, but the stuff that people remember is the stuff that comes out of left field, that is unexpected. You can't script everything as hard as we try. The stories get told and retold a million times, uh, and, and itineraries of around your Disney World trip are rendered utterly forgettable. But the story in ministry that was repeated at staff meetings over and over again in front of parishioners is somewhat embarrassing. But we don't always get to script the dates and events that are seared into people's memory. Sometimes those choose us. I was brand new to my position at Worthington Presbyterian Church, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. I was young and full of energy. I hadn't been there more than a few weeks, and I was put into the rotation. We had four ministers on staff, and we each got a day to go to the hospital because in a 2,100-member church, somebody was always in the hospital. So we shared that duty so that if you were in the hospital, on, by and large on every day, you had a minister come visit you. But here's the thing. I don't like hospitals. I don't like them at all. They smell. They don't smell when you first go in, but as soon as you get off the elevator to visit someone, it smacks you right in the face. For the place that 
most of us to believe to be one of the most sterile environs on earth. It's amazing how frequently hospitals smell as if someone has just had a bowel movement in the hallway. <laughs> if not that, certainly within the last 15 minutes, someone has mistaken a bed sheet for a urinal. And you mix that with the daily helping of turkey and broccoli that they serve on those plastic trays. You have a delightful blend that tickles the senses. Pee, poop, ammonia, broccoli. But hospitals are where they keep sick people. And Jesus said, I was sick and you visited me. And as a minister, that's what we had to do, visit sick people. An important part of the job. So I would just breathe through my mouth and do my level best to keep the conversation brief. Now a welcome pause between the parking garage and the patient's room is the reception desk in the hospital. It is, it is staffed by gray-haired women in pink coats. They are the volunteers who usually work a few hours a week. One woman may be in the same seat at the same desk every Wednesday afternoon from, say, 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock. The odd thing is that these women, the pink coats, don't get paid, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of turnover. They hold on to these appointed positions like Supreme Court justices. <laughs> Perhaps the prospect of having nothing to do in their golden years frightens them. Betty, can you play bridge on Wednesday afternoon? No, no, that's my day at the hospital. It's nice to be needed. The pink coats are easy to picture. It's hard to distinguish between them, much in the same way that your lunch ladies in elementary school looked exactly like your lunch ladies in junior high, who could have been twins separated at birth from your lunch ladies in high school. <laughs> Minus the hairnets, the principle is the same. Their nails are manicured and flawless. They drip with jewelry. Their glasses are attached with a chain, and the frames are usually blue or red. <laughs> and unlike the amalgam of lunch ladies and hairnets that I have in my mind, the pink coats were usually very thin, some frighteningly so, like a wayward lunch cart might cause them to fall and fracture a hip. But they are friendly women, almost desperate at times. When I would approach the desk to find out a patient's room, I would get uncomfortable because I knew the pounce was coming. They would give us badges to wear on our lapels, ministerial badges, but that did not dissuade their hospitality. They assume it's my first time ever in a hospital, giving step-by-step -step detailed directions on how to get to the elevator, which is 15 feet away from the receptionist. Unfortunately, these cheery souls were often confused. A typical conversation might be, could you please give me the room number for John Smith? Can you spell that, please? S-M-I-T-S-M-I-P, <laughs> no, no, S-M-I-T as in Thomas, H. Wait, can you slow down a little bit? <laughs> And then the recent HIPAA laws enacted to add a layer of difficulty for ministers and others to find out why a person is in the hospital seem to have empowered the pink coats even further. 
they are the key holders. With the computer screen right in front of them, I would often want to look around to see what it said. If I get a call at the church to say that someone's in the hospital, from the, from the hospital, they, they'll check on a form, I'm a Presbyterian and I belong here at Worthington Presbyterian, we get a call at the church, but they don't give us any details, so we don't know if someone has had a heart transplant or just a feisty case of gonorrhea. The pink coats are not permitted to clear that up for us. So I would just brace myself and prepare for the worst. Well, on this particular Thursday afternoon, we got a call that Melvin Coleman was in at Riverfront Hospital. Hospitals often have names that elicit feelings of tranquility. They have a saint in front of their, in front of their name, perhaps for divine intercession, or some peaceful geographic location. Rolling Hills, Riverfront, <laughs> Mount Sinai. Anyway, per usual, I didn't know why Melvin was in the hospital. I didn't know if I'd ever met Melvin. By his name, I figured he was older. You could ask my boys how many Melvins are at Crockett Elementary School, and you would get the picture. <laughs> but I was new on this job, having been there only a few weeks, as I said, so I approached the pink coats and got the information. Melvin is in room 4256, she said. So I got on the elevator. Joining me in the elevator was a lab technician carrying a red tackle box full of vials of blood and an overweight couple that smelled and looked like they had just made love in a giant ashtray. <laughs> the woman had a hickey on her neck the size of a walnut and of course, as soon as they got on the elevator, they pushed the button for floor number two. For the 12-foot ascent up to the second floor, rather than tiring themselves on the stairs. I figured the second floor was the emphysema wing. After the door opened on the fourth floor, I began breathing through my mouth and started looking for Melvin's room. At Riverfront, they don't regularly indicate the occupants' names on the placard outside the room. You know, it's a pain to have to change those names. So all they simply had was bed A and bed B, which is fine, except when you don't know what Melvin looks like. <laughs> Luckily, bed A was vacant, so bed B must have been Melvin's. The fourth floor, that particular wing at Riverfront, is reserved for heart patients. Everyone there is more or less in the same boat. They've had open heart surgery and have been moved from intensive care to the fourth floor to recuperate. An interesting thing at Riverfront is that all of the heart surgery patients are given a brown, fluffy teddy bear to clutch. They keep this against their incision in theory, so that if Marvin Hagler happened to come in and give them a knuckle sandwich in their rib cage, they would be protected. Most of the time, the teddy bear is sitting on the windowsill next to their bed. But Melvin actually had his teddy bear against his chest. Melvin, I announced. He was kind of groggy and just nodded my way. 
I'm from the church. I just wanted to come and see how you're doing. I sat down in the chair at the foot of his bed. Somebody once told me, another minister, that when you go visit someone, always sit down. Because even if you're only there for five minutes, it makes it seem like you were there longer. You've been a guest in their world. So I always sat down. Now, Melvin was a large, large man. I'd say he went 250 at least. And even after a week of turkey, broccoli, fruit cocktail, and open-heart surgery, he didn't look uh, any weaker. His nose was big, and his earlobes were long, and his eyebrows ran together above the bridge of his nose in a bushy mess. They were black and gray and long and wound together. How are you feeling, Melvin? Oh, pretty good. Melvin falls into the better of two categories that I've established for elderly people. His category is incredibly positive. Some elderly people just have a fantastic outlook on life no matter what. They love life. You could rear-end their car and kick them in the nuts, and they'd still be generally pleasant people. <laughs> The other category is no fun at all. They could have just won the Powerball, but their sinuses would be making them miserable. I know these are extremes on the continuum, but I find them to be helpful measuring sticks as to how a conversation will progress. Melvin had just had his sternum cracked open and stared death in the face, and he was feeling pretty good. When I visit people in the hospital, I throw out a question or two and let them lead. After, how are you feeling? I usually follow up with, so what are the doctors saying? Again, this helps deal with the fact that I don't know why they're in the hospital. <laughs> then they tell me what the doctors are saying. Sometimes they're very graphic, and I don't care for that. <laughs> After that, they may go on a rant. Or they may not want to talk about their condition anymore at all. The fact that nurses wake them up every 20 minutes during the night to check their blood pressure and ask them when the last time they voided was <laughs> may be reminder enough that they're sick and they're ready to move on. When their minister comes, they may just want an escape, and so I was open to either. Melvin didn't elaborate too much. Well, they may be sending me home by the weekend. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Are you looking forward to getting home? Obvious questions are a good de device as well. He doesn't say, of course, you dumbass. <laughs> Usually they perk up and start talking about home. For Melvin, it was golf. You a pretty good golfer, Melvin? Well, I've been hitting them pretty good. Last September, I shot my age. Wow, I replied. You must keep it pretty straight. Yeah, I'm not long, but I keep it in the short stuff. Being a golfer, I knew that shooting one's age is a major accomplishment. Where do you play usually, Melvin? Oh, over at the Elks course in Outland. I've been an Elk for 47 years. Wow. Now, I'd been in town for a very short period of time, but I'd never heard of Outland. This concerned me a bit. Melvin, can I say a prayer with you before we leave? Sure, he said. So I took his hand and said a quick prayer. As I headed for the door, I said, call the church if you need anything and take care. And he said, well, thanks for coming. 
after that Thursday finished, Friday morning came. And I loved Friday mornings. Those were the days that I would go play golf with our senior minister. His name was Phil, and he was a great friend and mentor to me. And we looked forward to uh, playing golf every Friday, and we'd rotate around different courses. And so we'd stop and get a cup of coffee and catch up. So on this Friday morning, he says, um, how's Melvin doing? I said, good, I just saw him yesterday. Did you know that he's a really good golfer? And Phil jerked his head up kind of quickly. Melvin? I don't think he's ever swung a golf club in his life. Oh, yeah, he has. He says he just shot his age last September over at the Elks Club. Really? Yeah, and he plays with his son pretty regularly. Uh, Melvin doesn't have a son, <laughs> Phil corrected. Huh, I exhaled. Confused. Phil said, how did this knee surgery go? I said, oh shit, I, I prayed with the wrong guy. <laughs> Only Mike. Mike Pentecost. You know, I bet the real Melvin was like a real negative. Nobody visited me. Oh, no, I know, yeah. No one, he's like pissed. No one visited me. Oh, that was that's amazing. My uh, my grandparents are like um, my grandpa is like so happy and he's always been that way. And then my grandma's just so negative and. You know, they live together in this really nice assisted living, but um, they recently had to uh, let my grandma know that my grandpa was going to have to be moved. He has dementia, and he's going to have to be moved into his, you know, uh, higher care area. And, you you know, and, and he was so upset. He didn't even know what was going on, and he's upset. And she was just like, and they were like, but don't worry. Like, you can come and visit him anytime. And she said, oh, great, now I'll never finish the paper. Um, she has to read the newspaper from front to back every single day and now she's so annoyed that she has to go visit my grandpa on the other floor now she'll never finish newspaper I know um, they're in their 90s and she actually said one time like in their 80s uh, she was so annoyed with him and she was like oh I thought I was going to get to enjoy my 80s and I guess she had hoped he died earlier yes. She's a bitch, man. Um, I love her. Okay. Well, uh, one more round of applause for all of our tellers. Oh, we have one more fabulous gift. I want to thank you all so much for coming, and um, we hope to see you back July 20th for my summer vacations. Thank you so much. Now you heard, go spread the word They're funny, smart, and so absurd Happens every month It's the neatest storytelling At its sweetest Music